Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Ocean. I said hi the other day, but it only waved back. Let's dim the lights and start the show. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by Big Apple Bank. Earn your first billion with our generous 2.5% interest rates at Big Apple Bank. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. I like a good dad joke that kind of underwhelms. I was just going to say, yeah, (laughs) something I should tell my kids. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, uh, to The Pestle. We are filmmakers, actors. I have a lot of acting thoughts today, but we we use all that information as people behind and in front of the camera to look at and analyze films and grind it up. That's what a pestle does. It's there to, to brace and, and grind things to make other things. Um, and that's what we make this podcast out of uh, ground up movies in the best way, um, lovingly with a cup of love. So last week we were talking about you mixing and mastering your album. There was one thing I wanted to bring up, but I wanted to save it because I thought it was a really important thing. And maybe you don't have a lot of thoughts about this, but if so, then I wanted to give some space to that, which is something you kind of flew by that I thought was so important because it's something I struggle with, which is when you went to mix your album, so Todd just finished recording a masterpiece. Um, his, what, what do you call it? An at magnum opus, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is the white album. Um, this is the black <laughs> album. This is, <laughs> so can I build it up a little more? <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> and so Todd uh, finishes recording this album. And he sends it off to get it mixed. But the first thing he has to figure out is who is going to mix it? Because that's a... It's not just a talent. It's also a taste thing. It's also a uh, can you follow directions thing. Um, and just what do you hear? Everyone's different, right? Everyone's going to see and hear and, and experience life differently. And that doesn't stop with the mixing process. And so as you were getting ready to figure out who's going to mix this thing, you send it out to several people just to see an example of what they would do with a given track. Um, and so I think you were kind of A-B testing some of these like, I'm going to send the same track to three people and see what each one of them does, which is really cool. One of those people you sent it to uh, is one of your best friends, Scott. And yet he did a good job. He's not a mixer, but he can mix because he's a musician. He's spent a lot of time in the studio. He's been doing a lot more mixing over the last few years. So he's getting really, really good at it. And you acknowledge that too. Talking to you personally, you're like, man, Scott did a really good job. I really like his mix. I gave him a couple notes just, you know, to see if he could, you know, improve it a little bit more. And he killed it. Um, And, and yet you didn't use Scott, one of your best friends. And so I'm, you went with a complete stranger. You didn't even go with someone you knew. You went with some random dude, rando internet, Joe underscore, (laughs) 1569 like yeah you, and and so i'm i would love to just hear you talk about that exercise of saying i'm going to do what's best for my album even if maybe it hurts a friend's feelings because not everyone can do that not everyone can objectively say this is the thing i need to do even though it's not going to make everyone around me happy please explain yourself <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that I mean it's a great great question. So in my old age, um I've I've 
I've recorded a lot and I've, I've been doing this a very long time. The one thing that I have never done is made 100% decisions for myself in the moment. I've always, I've, I've always, you know, made some kind of concession because of someone else's opinion or my opinion of them, uh, but not for the end product that I want to make. And, you know, when we talked about Scott mixing and how impressed I've been about his mixes, you know, yes, I'm very impressed. And in, in fact, you know, like when, when he started, when he started in his mixing journey, it was, you know, in my studio and, and he was just learning pro tools and stuff. And from that getting to where he is, he's a better mixer than me. I mean, he's great. He's really, really great. And the stuff I've been hearing, I'm like, man, that sounds super pro. But when it when it came down to it, you know, I I'm not going to just I'm not just going to pick somebody just because they're readily available, but I am going to give him a shot. And I got his mix and he was in the he was in the lead. And it was like between him and like two other guys, I think, at the time. And then I think one day I just sat down and I I AB'd their mixes with my mix. And there were these elements in it that that like were important to me that were not highlighted in any of those mixes. And I just purposefully didn't call them out. You know, it wasn't like, hey, I want to make sure to, that this is featured here and that's featured there. I said, do what you would do. Hmm. And then so when I heard it, I was like, wow, every all of these elements sound great. So it's not like a sonic problem. It was more like a compositional problem and and because because our vision of it was so drastically different drastically different i had like this kind of like oh my god this is not going to turn out the way that i want it in the end and if it does it's going to take six months to get there and then in the end i'll feel like i like kind of hodgepodged everything together so i had this kind of panic moment where i felt like the entirety of this four, three and a half year journey was going to not be what I wanted in the end. I don't care what it does. I don't care if anybody ever hears it. The only thing that mattered to me in that moment was this has to be perfect for me. Like otherwise all everything else just didn't matter. So I like, I went online and I just did like, I don't know, a few searches and I came across a, a site with a bunch of mixing engineers, mastering engineers, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I spent probably the better part of seven hours going through hundreds of guys and girls. Um, in fact, I really wanted a female to mix this because I just felt like there might be more of an emotional kind of like mm. um, journey and connection with a female. Because we hear that a lot in editing. I've heard so many directors over the last, you know, 30 years um on various projects you know from spielberg up right that are like you know there's something uh, uh women do in editing they're more emotionally connected to the material yeah. than a lot of the guys that i've had editing and they're just making different decisions that tell the more emotional side of the story that guys just aren't connecting with and so there's some precedent to that in film as well yeah i think wow that's crazy to hear that i mean i just think that that women are are it's more acceptable for women to, women to tap into their emotional side than males like mm -hmm. in general i'm not 
you know, like making it's a broad statement, but like in general, um, anyway, but I found this guy and I've, I've, I paid four different guys, paid them to mix the same song. (laughs) It was like very expensive, but this guy absolutely blew me away. It was like, it was perfect right out of the gate. I, I, I told him, I said, you could make no changes and I would be happy, but these are the few things I want you to, to do. And then it was absolutely perfect. I, like I could not explain to you how good it felt. I'm kind of like getting a grog in my throat, how good it felt to have some, somebody just get it instantly. They just like, I know exactly what this should sound like and what it should do at this moment and what it should do at that moment. And for those of you who make films, it's the equivalent of not giving any direction to an editor and giving them all the footage and it coming back exactly how you see it in your, in your mind. Imagine that happening. Now, it, where does it happen often? No, <laughs> you've got to give a lot of direction and that's totally fine because you're totally different people. But in a project that I've spent, you know, a long time on, it was just undeniable, undeniable. And not just to me, I sent it to, I sent it to Scott and to a couple of the guys and they were like, holy shit. Wow. This is amazing. And so, yeah, so he did the whole record and it was an incredible experience. And I want to say, I want to say one thing that to anybody out there who is like a hired worker, right? Like a hired, like you're hired to edit or you're hired to mix or you're hired to, to do something for somebody else with with a vision. Be patient. It is very hard for people, even people who know exactly what they want to describe it in a way where you're going to get all the detail from it that you need to do what they see in their head. It almost has nothing to do with what they're saying to you word wise, but how they're saying it. So I would like in my direction to him, tell him everything verbally that he, I wanted him to do. And he would do those things, but he would also do the things that weren't on the page. He would do a little bit more, right? In order to get what I'm trying, what I'm saying to him, he wouldn't just make the one move I ask him to make. He would make two or three moves to get the the actual overall what I'm saying. Like, like, man, the low end here just feels a bit boxy. Can we, you know, boost a little, a little, you know, 1K or so, something like that? I would make that suggestion. And he would do that, but he would also like pull back a little bit of 4K of something else, you know, in order to do to make that happen, things like that. And so it, some mixes took eight rounds. Others took two, you know? So, um, and I, the, throughout the whole time I told him, man, thank you for being patient with me. You know, a couple of times I had to pull back on a couple of things that I said yeah. because, yeah. So anyway, it just be patient, but right. No, that's man. That's really cool. And so for you, it just wasn't even, you, it doesn't sound like there was very much struggle at all about hurting some feelings potentially and just doing oh. what was right for for your project. There was at first, yeah. you know, because I love Scott and I didn't want him to be disheartened. Um, I didn't want him to think that like what he did wasn't good because it really was. But also at the same time, I kind of follow the, the money ball approach where like we're grown men, you know, mm. like he he can't take offense to it yeah he he's not allowed to take offense to it it just is mm-hmm. what it is it's not that i didn't think it was good and i told him that it's great man this is just more what i'm going for 
That's interesting. So my last thought on that then is you also trusted him Mm -hmm. to be okay with that, that he's adult enough to be like, this isn't about me. This is about him and Todd getting exactly what he wants for this thing that he loves and cares about. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, and, and I thought because after working with him in the studio, when you, you were there with us, how professional he was Mm. and how just on it he was. And there was no argument. If I said I wanted something a certain way, you know, he would ask a question or like, like, what about this or that? But in the end, I got my way if I wanted it. It was just very professional. So I didn't think that he would have a problem with it in the end. That's really cool. I think that's probably going to be my lever to pull in the future if I ever feel like I need to to go a different direction. It's just like, I'm going to trust the people around me that they know me enough that it's not about them. It's not about even me sometimes, right? It's just about doing what I think is best for the project. And um, it's this is, it's not a value judgment on anyone's abilities um, or skill set. It's It's just trying to do what makes the most sense for the project at any given time. Yeah, I mean, and if they're professional and yeah. like if they see themselves as professional, they'll understand this is par for the course that you don't just get a gig because it's your friend. Yeah. You get the shot, but you don't necessarily, you know, maybe you get the shot because it's your friend. But if you don't get it in the end, you know, it just is what it is. It's another gig, yeah. you know, and kudos to him for taking it the way. And and I've been bouncing mixes off of him since. And he's given me great feedback you know, like he gave me a few notes on a few other other mixes. And I was like, you know what? That's a great call that I didn't hear. Fantastic. Thanks, Scott. You know, uh, and it's he's been just really wonderful. And now I'm doing mastering and I sent him some some masters to like, do you like one, two or three? And he told me what he want, what he likes. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. OK, OK, cool. Now, in the end, I, I pick what I want. You know, yeah. I do. I do what I want. But it's interesting to know, you know. That, oh, he thinks this and this is why. Oh, okay, cool, cool. You know, but I also feel very good about, you know, picking what I want. Yeah. What I think is best. And if if what he thinks is best is corroborates that, then cool. It just cements it in. And if not, it makes me think, okay, do I really want that? Do I really want number three instead of number one? Okay, why? Okay. Yeah. Nope, I still want three. So we go with three. You know what I mean? Or, oh, it's interesting. One. And he he has just been really wonderful when it comes to that. So, yeah, good question. Nice, man. Uh, From my perspective, this album cannot fail. (laughs) You know what else can't fail? (laughs) Perfect. I love it. Segway King. So today we are going to be covering uh, Apollo 13. If you haven't seen this film... Uh, please pause this episode and go watch it. We're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's from 1995. So if you're a film buff and you haven't seen it, question how big of a buff you are. But yeah, <laughs> go pause this episode and go watch it. Absolutely. We're going to look at a bunch of stuff. Uh, we'll dive into a little bit of the cinematography. There's a cool vertigo uh, shot. There's the way they sell space gravity. Uh, we'll also dive into some of the story and uh, writing, discuss some of the exposition, building stakes and tension. Uh, maybe also look at some of the acting, directing, um, building emotional weight, stoicism, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. NASA must devise a strategy to return Apollo 13 to Earth safely after the spacecraft undergoes massive internal damage, putting the lives of the three astronauts on board in jeopardy. It's directed by Ron Howard, screenplay by William Broyles Jr. and Al Reinert. 
Uh, it's based on the book by Jim Lovell and Jeffrey Kluger. It's featuring Tom Hanks as Jim Lovell, Bill Paxton as Fred Hayes, Kevin Bacon as Jack Swigert, Gary Sinise as Ken Mattingly, and Ed Harris as Gene Kranz. Apollo 13 Commander Jim Lovell has more time in space, almost 24 days already, than any other man. And I asked him recently if he ever was scared. Oh, well, I've had an engine flame out a few times in an aircraft and was kind of curious as to whether it was going to light up again, things of that nature. But uh, they, they seem to work out. Is there a specific instance in an airplane emergency when you can recall fear? Uh, well, I tell you, I remember this one time. I'm, uh, I'm in a banshee at night in combat conditions, so there's no running lights on the carrier. Uh, it was a Shangri-La. We were in the Sea of Japan, and my, my radar had jammed, and my homing signal was gone because somebody in Japan was actually using the same frequency, and so it was, it was leading me away from where I was supposed to be. And I'm looking down at a big black ocean, so uh, I flip on my map light, and then suddenly, zap, everything shorts out right there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone, my lights are gone, and I can't even tell now what my altitude is. Uh, I know I'm running out of fuel, so I'm thinking about, uh, about ditching in the ocean, and I, I look down there, and then in, in the darkness, there's this, uh, there's this green trail. It's like a long carpet that's just laid out right beneath me, and it was the algae, right? It was that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship, and it was, it was, it was just leading me home. Now, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there's no way I'd have ever been able to see that. So, uh, you, uh, you never know what, what events are going to transpire to get you home. Todd, <clears throat> this movie is almost 30 years old, about an event that's about 55 years old, you know, 53 yeah. years old, and... So surely by now of an event that we know exactly what's going to happen uh, in a movie where we've seen before. So surely at this point, it's lost some punch, right? Like it's, it's kind of humdrum, right? Oh uh, is, yeah. Is there anything left in this thing? In this thing? <laughs> uh, I don't, it, w it was the highlight of my week watching this film. <laughs> I was so excited to see it again. Um, I haven't seen it in decades, you know, and I just got to say, I mean, Ron Howard just made a masterpiece and it's, it's of no, it's, I don't know. One of those things where everything came together. I mean, the, the biggest thing in this film is the casting uh, to me. I mean, every single uh, Tom Hanks is flawless in this film and just puts on a masterclass and that, that I'm so glad you picked that uh, scene because that's one of the notes i had <laughs> which was it was just such a great moment to call out that like you know sometimes bad things happen for us not to us hmm. and it's all in the perspective of you like like okay that thing bad happened in order for something really great to happen right after you know anyway so the casting is really great tom hanks is fantastic gary sinise like come on <laughs> just absolutely adore him and i love that like the the way that they lay out the story too is so good that Ron Howard lays out the story. Like we don't see Ed Harris until we need to see Ed Harris. It's over 30 minutes into the movie before we even see him because why would we need to see him? You know, he's, he's in Houston and, and he's part of the, the flight crew. So why, why would we need him? Because the sh it hasn't started yet. 
<clears throat> the journey hasn't started yet. Um, other things like little things that Ed makes um, Tom ha- Tom Hanks's character do also tell the story too. The thumb over the moon. Tell that tells you what his goal is, where he's trying to go to. His whole life has led him to the moon. He's putting his thumb over it. It looks small right now, and yet it's so big, and it's the biggest thing that humans will have ever done getting there. And then you see him in the in the cockpit later on, trying to get back to Earth, and he puts his thumb over Earth. That's where his that's his goal. His only sole mission is to get home, to get back to that little thing that he can cover with his thumb. All of everything that has ever existed is covered by his thumb. And that's that's his whole goal of his life. Little things like that, which maybe were in the script, maybe weren't, you know, but it's it's just kind of a call a call back to the beginning. You know, we're changing our goal now. And Ed Harris is a man on a mission. I just love how direct he is and uncompromising and you know demanding he is in a moment where if you're not the the quote-unquote jerk or the the one who's running the ship then people will get lazy or not push themselves to a point of failure and that means that these guys die and just his his the way he runs his character is uh, otherworldly it's so good pun intended yeah. So okay. So there's the casting, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that there's not much music in this. A lot of it is musicless hmm. until those moments where you hear the the horn playing. That tells you this is a moment. Be here now, because this is important. And then there's nothing for a long time. And then you know something bad happens or something. Um, this is another moment, and. Oh, they're trying to put something together. And and if they can't do this, then they're going to die. This is a moment. We have like, you know, a piece of music here. But they use music to tell you this is important rather than just blanketing the entire thing with music. I thought that that was really beautiful and wonderful. I thought the editing was <laughs> absolutely amazing. They cut out They cut out stuff that I think maybe a film today would might not you know you would jump from from being at him being at home to him being in the simulator you know like or from them being at the simu in the simulator to like like something complete him being somewhere oh what was it the thing that made me think about it was when he's giving the tour at nasa and then the guy comes out and says can we talk for a minute and then cut he's at home walking through the door like there's no conversation to be had. There's no him reacting to knowing he's gotten it. It's just him going home to tell his family, which is the biggest thing because his family is what drives him to get home. His wife plays a massive part in this film. Not only is she important, established that she's important to him. Like when she shows up for the launch, even though she said she wasn't who that got me. Um, and, and, him going home to tell them is more important than him finding out that he got it. And so why tell, why show him finding out that he got it, show him telling her that's it. Um, That's the story. And so that's all they show. Great editing, great editing there. The foreshadowing of her being in the shower and losing her ring, Mm. you know, before anything goes wrong, 
but like that is so fantastic. It just shows like the stress on her of having to deal with it because it's not just them being stressed out being in space. It's the people that love them being stressed out that they'll never come home. Uh, that stuff like that is like was beautiful and fantastic. I loved that everybody like nobody cared about it. Nobody cared about it until there was something to care about, right? Oh, we've been to the moon. Oh, this is a walk in the park going back. No, <laughs> anything but, you know, but the media didn't cover it and she was upset about that. And so, and so she defended them when she defended them when they were trying to, to put all the things on their, on her yard lawn and, and interview her when things started going wrong. She's like, they will not put one thing, piece of equipment on my yard. Love the strength of her. She's absolutely fantastic. Without her, the film falls flat. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Even with, despite everything else, without her, a film falls flat. The innocence and the um, the beauty of the <laughs> of him talking to his son about what went wrong in the fire, and him saying, giving the one problem uh, or like w- just giving him one issue. Well, this door they couldn't get it open, and then when she the mother tells the son about something went wrong and his innocence of saying, was it the door? It's just, Oh oh man. So good. The algae story was another one. Uh, I already mentioned the thumb on the moon. The last thing I'll say, and the thing that probably (laughs) for some reason got me. And I, I, maybe it's because I'm a dad now and I wasn't the last time I saw this was when they went to tell his mother that something went wrong and the little girl starts crying and she says, are you scared? If, if they may something like if they, if it can fly, my Jimmy can, can land it. Like, Oh, oh. like these, just these like little one liner things. And the way that she said it, I knew it. I, there's so many lines that are delivered in this film where I remember exactly how it was delivered not just what they said but how they said it and that to me says is the greatness of this film um and the greatness of the acting by everybody i just remember exactly not where i was but just exactly how they said it and i i also think how can you how can you plan to make that you can't it just is a magic a piece of magic that you capture over and over again, because you like that. Like there's just something in you as Ron Howard that says, that's the take, Hmm. you know, they probably did 10, 15, 20 takes of her saying that maybe they just did one because she was really tired. (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) but him to know that's it. Nope. That's it. Every single time. And to be right, every single time, it's just unbelievable. Uh, This is a 10 out of 10 for me easy if i could give it 11 i would and i almost love it more because they didn't get to the moon mm. you know because it, it it is also a parallel of life you have these goals and you have these ambitions and this these things that drive you and that's good to have those you have to have those but what do you do when you have to sh- shift when life throws you a, a, a hand grenade and blows everything up in front of you and you've got to go around it keep going like what do you do you make a square peg fit in a round hole. That's what you do. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they did that over and over and over again. My daughter watched this with us. She came, she came home from a friend's house and we were about halfway through and 
she watched almost the entire thing. She got really tired at the end because it was kind of late. And so she went upstairs, but she like was in it, you know, like stressed to the max. I had to tell her they're going to get home. They're going to be okay. Anyway, I'll stop talking because I really want to know what you think. And I want to hear your notes, but yeah, it's absolute 10 out of 10. Yeah. Agreed. And agreed on all fronts like that. I could watch this twice last night, uh, yesterday afternoon. And then again, this morning, uh, to take my notes and get choked up both times, <laughs> knowing everything that's going to happen, everything's going to be fine. And yet they touch down the, whatever mission control explodes, right. Uh, in, in celebration and, um, and me too. I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> both times. Like, that's crazy. That's really good filmmaking, really strong storytelling in a number of ways. Yeah. I saw this for the first time in theaters, um, with my two big brothers, uh, as a, I was, I don't know, probably 13 or so. And we, my, my mom, uh, got us tickets to go see David Allen Coe, who uh -huh. I really didn't know who that was, but, uh, he was doing a concert at the amphitheater in college station. Um, and she had gotten us two tickets and we we're like, well, we got to go find a third ticket because there's three of us. And I, I don't remember who it was exactly. It was probably me though. And I was like, do you, would y'all rather just go watch Apollo 13? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went and hocked the tickets and we went and watched this movie and it was just the best day. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Great story. And, it's it's held up like uh from that moment walking in you knew what was going to happen you knew the result even though i wasn't aware of this story growing up like but if if this movie didn't exist i would never know about the apollo 13 um crisis and and yet you know now it's just a fundamental part of my life um because of ron howard and uh tom hanks my god i don't know how many people they could have cast that could have got you to care about Jim Lovell, you know, more than Tom Hanks, like, or as, as much as Tom Hanks, he just, I, I'm, I was tempted. I, I, I probably should have just went and read some of the script just to see where is Tom Hanks going off book to create a little bit more texture to the character. Cause there's that moment in the back, uh, backyard with his wife after the Apollo 11 landing and they're looking up at the moon and his wife, uh, Marilyn, asks him, uh, which one is my my mountain? And he's like, well, it's just, well, you got to look, you know, and he just kind of cuts himself off. And he's like, it's right there. Well, you see the dark side of the moon. And I can just imagine the script only has like one of those things. And he's just starting and stopping himself because he's, you know, he's in it. He's talking to his wife. And that's and that's that. Um, and I would just love to kind of see that AB reference of this is what he was given. And this is what he did, because I don't know how much Ron Howard has to step in and say, you know what, Tom, here's what you really need to do. <laughs> Can you imagine Tom Hanks? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm sure he takes direction as well as anyone else in the, uh, in the industry. But, uh, the, the question is how often does he need to be given direction? I mean, yeah probably none for character right yeah um but then maybe some technical stuff that's happening on the day is like oh can you look here instead of there oh yeah sure you got it ronnie i don't i don't know what they call <laughs> each other but <laughs> howie howie <laughs> um 
Yeah. And so watching this, man, it, it really is a masterclass. It's a slice of time seeing, you know, all these guys this young, Tom Hanks and Ed Harris, you know, just impossibly young. Gene Kranz, I don't know if you picked up on this, but I'm pretty sure, I'm like 99% sure he never speaks directly to the team. All his, he never talks to Jim Lovell. He never talks to Fred. All his communication goes through his team. Oh, yeah. And he's there to quarterback. He's not there to do people's jobs for them. And maybe there's also this emotional distance that he's creating between himself and them so that he never feels compromised in his ability to make a call, right? Mm. And so the more emotional distance that he's able to keep, um, as well as involve his team, because he needs his team operating at a high level and having them as the go-between might help that as well. Uh, but I tried to watch it with that in mind and I really don't remember him ever speaking directly to them. It was always tell him this, tell him that, you know, did he copy? Hey, Jim, did you copy that? <laughs> yes. Yes. Mission. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And so that was just a really interesting wrinkle to have, you know, these, heavy hitters that really aren't talking to each other the entire movie. Um, and yet it feels like they are right. You, you really have to sit and think, wait, no, that's not right. Is that right? Uh, but that seems to be the case. And that's just a really interesting decision. And it feels real to me. It feels rooted in reality, probably because that's the way it, they operate in mission control. Um, maybe flight really doesn't speak directly to the astronauts or maybe they didn't back then as opposed to now. I don't know. Um, I don't know anything about that. All I know is it felt like everything was operating by the book in there. And that I imagine is a, is a key piece of it. Um, or it's just a really innovative uh, direction uh, decision from Ron Howard, uh, which would be communicating on some other level for sure. Um, yeah, it could have been easy. I guess my point is it could have been really easy to cut out everyone else in the room and make it about Ed Harris, Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. You know, instead, you really feel the weight of NASA in that room and operating um, and, you know, him calling things out and, hey, here's what we're going to do. Uh, yeah, it's really a fascinating way to watch the film. Just thinking about who is actually acting with who and which scenes. But for the most part, it's not Ed Harris and, and, and those guys like it's him and Gary Sinise, you know, doing a little bit, but I don't remember him talking directly to Gary a lot either. Yeah. Just said, yeah, just maybe at the end mm -hmm. when he comes to mission control mm -hmm. and he takes over kind of the comms with the, with the guys, maybe then, but even then, yeah, not really very much. It's yeah. Interesting. I didn't even yeah. think of that. Pretty cool. I'll run through some of my notes because uh, my favorite note uh, isn't coming for a while. Um, but real quick, some of the cinematography, I always love it when I find a shot where the camera doesn't move and yet you get to do a lot within the frame. Um, and one of these shots happens early on when we're in mission control, we're, we're looking down a row and in the, in the distance, you have one guy talking, you know, upstage and he says his line and then a, a, a guy, you know, down downstage right in front of the camera leans in and takes up the frame. Right. And says his line. And I love it because our eye didn't have to travel. And yet we still got a sense of the geography and the depth of the room. And it's visually interesting. We're getting various coverage 
of two different lines, right? These aren't two different cuts. It's it's one cut and you're getting two lines with two different angles um, without ever touching the camera. It's really fascinating um, way to approach a scene, especially as something as with as many options as mission control. And they do it all in that, in, in that room. We'll do that. We'll, we'll do a, a crane dolly move, you know, down the row as everyone's checking Jim's math, right? Houston, uh, good, good here. Good. You know, craning through all that, you know, tracking, um, really nice. Yeah. Uh, another shot in mission control is this vertigo shot of Ed Harris, right? this is right after, um, Jim Lovell notices the oxygen leak out the window. And then as that reveal is happening, we cut around the room and then we cut to, to Gene Kranz and we do this dolly zoom. Um, a vertigo shot is the way a lot of people know it. Um, and this is where we're pulling back while zooming in. Um, and so the, the camera's pulling backwards while we're zooming in so that Ed Harris in the frame is staying the exact same. Like he doesn't move within the frame even or, or shrink or get bigger. He stays the exact same size the entire move. And what it does though, is since you're pulling back and, and zooming in, we're narrowing the field of view. And so he's getting squeezed into the frame um, and it's compressing the image. And so everything's narrowing in. It's this very emotional shot. It's shrinking his world and it's communicating a lot of how he's feeling. And it tells the audience a lot of information about the significance of this reveal, as well as knowing that mission control is aware too. Um, and so you feel the weight of it. And I think that shot is important also because of just how stoic every, every guy is in mission control and in the in the command module, no one is losing their, their, their shit, right? Everyone's staying in control. And so how do you reveal emotional engagement from your characters? Uh, well here, let's do it in a camera move, um, that you feel it, right? Um, he can't express it visually. So we'll express it visually for him through a camera move. Um, it's, it's really just simple, smart. Uh, and I don't think we see that shot again for the rest of the film. It's just a one and done use of that technique which is usual. Like you don't see a lot of vertigo shots. Like you might do it once in a film and that's that. That's interesting. I don't remember that. I need to go back and watch that. Yeah. It's quick, but it's yeah. punchy, man. It's, it's really cool. Another thing they're doing cinematography wise is the way they sell space gravity. Well, I didn't look up any of this. So this is just me trying to read the tea leaves a little bit, but I'm assuming it's probably a healthy mix of camera tricks, right? Maybe a visual effects shot of a floating object, uh, maybe composite shots, where we're layering in elements um, and, and compose, uh, compositing them in post, or maybe it's also some performance techniques, right? Where your actor might kind of lean forward, um, but they have to position their weight of their body in a way that it doesn't look like they're straining at all, right? And so they just kind of float and you just move forward a little bit right there and, and move back. And so, at, and you're trying to emulate what lack of gravity feels like. And then two, I assume there's lots of time in the vomit comet, right? That plane that rides up and down in the atmosphere to uh, simulate weight-free um, gravity uh, within the Earth's atmosphere. And so it, it looked like they spent a lot of time in that mofo. Uh, there are so many shots, especially, and I think it's most important when they get to space to use that trick so that you can say, oh, no wires, right? That's the moment where uh, Bill Paxton takes off the helmet and spins the helmet right there in front of you. It's like, hey, audience, guess what? 
this is real. This isn't like wires out of frame. Uh, this is us. And I, the only way they're going to get that right is using something like the vomit comet and named for obvious reasons. I, I hope no one <laughs> needs that explained to them. Um, but once you kind of use that trick, you know, a dozen times in the first 10 minutes of them being in space, then you just have buy-in. Now you can move to these other tricks uh, because it just feels like you've sold it already. You don't have to do it too many times after that. But there's another shot light, later in the film with all three of those guys in frame, right? Um, Hanks, Paxton, Bacon. And they're staging them around the cabin so that Hanks is at the bottom of the frame. Kevin Bacon is sitting on the ceiling, right? And then you have uh, Bill Paxton. He's kind of in between, um, almost, you know, halfway. And that kind of shot, I would assume you're probably strapping everyone in really hardcore, specifically Kevin Bacon. <laughs> um, I, As well as maybe some flourishes from the prop and wardrobe department right hair is going to be handled a certain way as well as the wardrobe and clothes styled in a certain way to simulate where they would be um in gravity or whatever or it's a composite shot maybe that's one of those moments where you just frame those all differently but there's a i'm pretty sure there's this, like this this dolly move that they're doing in that shot to reveal kevin bacon they're starting on a close of tom hanks um, and I don't know that you're going to composite that as easily. You can do it. It just becomes a really big pain in the ass. But you also made Apollo 13. You probably are not afraid of a really big pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Cinematography-wise, my only other note, um, I mean, I had other thoughts. But the the other one that I just love finding these little moments that's like, they didn't have to do that. But they did it. And it it pays. It pays dividends. Which is at the launch, when they when they do the big takeoff sequence. They do some other fun little things, right? The explosion, uh, you always, you cannot shoot a rocket taking off without the explosion. Like you just got to have it. Uh, and the interesting thing though, is they, they also run it in reverse. It was like, they didn't have enough footage. Oh yeah. Right. Or they just thought it was a cool effect. I know I didn't notice it growing up. I had noticed the hell out of it this time. And it's, you know, we see the explosion at first and then cut to a bunch of other stuff. And then we see it again, except now they're playing it backwards and it's like getting sucked up. I don't know. It was, it was cool. But the the thing that I noticed is the shots with Ken Mattingly out in the field, watching the takeoff and experiencing that moment of that's not me. Right. There's this beautiful little boom shot where we're booming up probably on a crane. It's this rising shot on Gary Sinise and he's watching it. Right. Uh, supposedly, right. That he's not watching anything. Um, his, but he's got his hand up, right. He's kind of covering, uh, his hand in the sun just to block, get a better view kind of thing. And that's so much work to go in the middle of nowhere, set up a crane to boom up for this two second shot that adds so much production value and emotional tone because we're seeing Ken Mattingly, right. Shrink into the earth as the rocket rises above him. And we feel like we're taking the perspective of the rocket as we're rising up. And so you're selling this idea that they're taking off and leaving him behind. Um, and so we can kind of emotionally uh, imbue him with all those feelings that we assume that guy in real life is probably feeling. It's like, mm. man, that should have been me. And it's just a little two-second shot, a lot of work, but it really pays off um, in, in the emotional you know, tones that they're going for. Story and writing-wise, 
exposition out the wazoo, right? But they do it and create stakes. That's, I, it's important to do a lot of the exposition they're doing in order to have the stakes at all. Because um, if you're not letting the audience understand what's happening and why it matters, they're not really going to care one way or the other. They're just kind of sitting in a seat watching things happen. Uh, but if you explain to them, you know, if Swiger can't dock this thing, we don't have a mission. And now we're watching him dock, right? Uh, and it's like, okay, it's important that he does this or else the whole mission is scrapped. We're not going to do anything. Um, and so the the stakes are set through this random voice in flight control, right? That uh, as they're doing the dock, we, I don't even think we see the guy. Like, I'm sure his lips are moving somewhere on screen. Couldn't tell you who it was, though. And it's just a little throwaway line. And often throughout the film, they're using conflict to tell us something, right? Letting two characters argue about something in order to communicate it to the audience. And so, oh, the the the, the moment when we find out that they're not broadcasting, right? First off, they set it up with the daughter fighting the mom, right? The Beatles broke up and she's having this emotional uh, collapse over it. And the, the little girl is like, oh, she's still upset over the Beatles breaking up. Right. So that's exposition for one, letting us know, but also letting us know it's time to get over it. Um, and also letting us know her and her sister are probably fighting a lot. Um, so there's a lot of information just from her little line setting up the scene. Um, and then the, the, the daughter, right, is like, I don't care. Like, blah, 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 blah. And the mom is like, the whole world is going to be watching your father tonight. Cut to her finding out that, in fact, they're not. Uh, and so using that conflict with the daughter sets up an expectation that we're then going to upset. Now, if you never have that expectation, then it doesn't feel as big of a letdown whenever you find out they've been broadcasting without the world watching. Whereas if you know going into it, oh man, this is a big broadcast event. And then no, crap, they're talking to themselves. And so just using conflict there, they do it again later on. You can't close them. You can't reopen them. You can't land on the moon with one good cell, right? There, uh, Gene is arguing with one of his techs um, about the, the cells, right? And it's telling us that the mission is now broken. We're spelling it out just to make sure we didn't lose anyone in the back of the audience. Like, we need these cells in order to get on the moon. And so once we establish that, and then once we communicate to Jim Lovell, you need to cut these cells off. Now we understand the look in his eye. Like, oh, and now you're, you're almost anticipating we just lost a moon and you understand why he's saying that you need that little conflict to, to make it feel seamless. Now, Gene Kranz probably doesn't need to say that out loud in real life. <laughs> he probably understands the stakes. Now, maybe that's also a good, a part, a part of good communication in that environment um, of just confirming with everyone what we're doing. But in reality, he probably doesn't need to spell it out for everyone in the room. Um, but good storytelling nonetheless. They also use a lot of like the news and press conferences to, you know, give us emotion expositional uh, moments for stakes, right? The press conference. Um, yeah, what what about their carbon dioxide? It's rising. Like <laughs> that's that's that, right? Well, what about their oxygen? No, well, hold on one minute. That has nothing to do with their oxygen levels. Uh, right. And then we cut to a new segment. That further clarifies, right? And it's just this classic expositional dump that we constantly, if as a filmmaker, you can never figure it out, 
just use a news anchor to explain it dumbly to an audience because that's us, the dumb audience. <laughs> well, and the cool thing about that was that like, it looked like, it looked like actual footage, Yeah, you know, it was because it's dated like that and it, it, it feels less like exposition. Like we staged this to make this for the film. No, this was actual footage that actually happened. And, and I don't know that it was, but it really felt like it. I assume it was. Absolutely. Like, I don't know either, but it really does. And it also helps build it up as this community event, this big American crisis moment. The more you're interacting with the media now goes back to your point earlier about uh, no one cared when everything was going well. Now people only care um, when everything's falling apart, which is really interesting that this came out in 95 being made in 94 and probably written you know, in the early nineties, because this coincided with the rise of the 24 hour news cycle that mm. from what I've read began, guess when 94, 95 with the OJ Simpson trial. Mm. And so you, you could read this, that whole element as a commentary about the, the news cycle in modern day, but back then it wasn't, it was just, this is less a commentary of, you know, the, the modern news cycle than it is a commentary about humanity not really caring about people and until it, it's interesting quote unquote which mm -hmm. is you know uh, evergreen that's an evergreen you know thought <laughs> unfortunately yeah. um but the other expositional thing that they do that is less obvious um but is genius what is the the tape cassette player whenever we're listening to it throughout the film you know, the battery slowly fades away and the more it fades away, the more it's cluing us in to the health of the crew. And so as it's dying right towards the end, uh, it's just like chopped and screwed. It's like just it's barely alive. Um, and now we're feeling them dying. We're feeling the battery life on the ship itself at stake right because that's coinciding with the whole idea of the power issue as well as cluing us into the passage of time like we've we've lapsed time now the the tape has gone from a little slow to it's like on its last legs uh and so there's so much kind of uh emotional exposition happening as well as kind of the plot line um mm -hmm. it's it's really well just a smart little add-in that you don't have to have but my god it's it's there for a purpose yeah yeah and the like the tape basically melting because of the cold off of the off of the actual side of the the lamb like just so yeah. such detail in that kind of stuff i mean we watch it and we think oh yeah that happens and that happens and i think this because of that and but like to create that from nothing to for ron howard to think oh we need this shot and this shot and the thing about the the tape player just just brilliant right. and it makes me think is it because the batteries are dying or is it because it's so cold mm. that the tape player itself cannot continue turning like i i don't know but either way it's bad <laughs> nothing good is happening right now yeah yeah oh uh, the other thing and i think this is the most important part of this movie actually is the way they build stakes and tension um because throughout the film there's actually lots of little failures sprinkled throughout, right? Towards the beginning, Jim's car stalls, right? He's at the stoplight and he hits the gas and it stalls out. And then what's he do? Calmly turns it back on and continues driving safely. And the engine five failure after launch, right? That thing cuts out. Um, and they're 
checking like, is everything good? Yeah, everything's fine. Okay, we can we keep going. Um, Gene's overhead projector fails right after the initial crisis strikes and he gathers the team in the room and cuts on the, the projector and it immediately dies and just rolls his eyes, shoves it out of the way and switches to the chalkboard. And as well as uh, Jim's story itself of him landing in the sea, that clip we played, right? Him landing in the sea of Japan and there's this big electric failure in the cockpit and that ultimately leads to, you know, his safety. And so throughout the movie itself, it's not just Apollo 13 having technical failures. Everything in life is having technical failures. The difference, obviously, is that none of those things are life-threatening. It's not until you really need something and that it fails that it really matters. Um, and so I think part of that is also just to, to alleviate some of the stress on the engineers who put that stuff together. It's like, man, stuff just happens, you know? Um, it's unfortunate that... It happened in this circumstance, but engineers all over the world are failing and it's just the way it goes sometimes. Um, and sometimes it happens in more important moments than others, but it's all, they also use some of the stuff to kind of tease the audience, right? The five engine, uh, engine five flashing, right? Uh, as the audience walking into this movie, we don't know when the moment's happening. You know, the first time you watch this, you, you know what it's about. And then you're like, oh no, is this it? Are we, are we on? Um, and they're like, no, everything's fine. Ooh, keep going. The docking sequence, right? That little scrape and there's this clunk and this big compression thing that's happening. All these metallic noises clanging. And you're like, oh, is this, is this it? Um, no, it's fine. And the gag from Fred during the show, right? He does that little air thing. Um, we're like, oh no. And nope, everything's fine, right? It's not until we do that really nice dramatic uh, reach in of, of Kevin Bacon's fingers or whatever going into, to, you know, stir their oxygen tanks. Yeah. And so I love the way that they, as an audience, he was aware, Ron Howard was aware, the audience is coming in already knowing the premise. Let's play with that a little bit. How can we tease out the expectation? That's a hard thing to do as a writer to sit and imagine the marketing campaign around a movie and assuming the audience knows the setup. How can I use that against them? That's just really, really smart three-dimensional thinking, you know. Mm -hmm. But the emotional stakes and tension is built through a lot of time throughout the film, right? We're imagining these nightmare scenarios, right? We have the family fears. The uh, Marilyn wakes up from a nightmare. And it's funny watching that sequence. You assume that's Jim Lovell's nightmare. And then when mm -hmm. she wakes up, oh, crap. Yeah. Cut from that to the sun asking about the the fire and just kind of at the beginning struggling to make eye contact with his dad and then like yeah right and we're just kind of there with the son and it just builds a lot of stakes and anticipation for what's going to happen and they do that right there's so many stakes and tension throughout this film and i i think it's working through you know a Part of it is all the barrage of problems that they need to figure out and solve, right? Uh, sleep, right? The, the oxygen leaking, carbon dioxide, uh, power draw, heat shields, condensation. And there's that nice little pause. Uh, and Houston, are, are these going to short out? There's, there's an awful lot of condensation in the room, right? And I love the shot uh, before where it's Jack reaching out for the watery switch, pausing coming back and we're just tracking that whole thing with his hand back and forward. Then he delivers his line. Right. And we just really feel his hesitation because of that shot. 
you could have done it a number of ways where it's just two cuts, but watching and having to spend that time watching him, like you feel it a little bit more, the hesitation. And so after watching a film full of these weird technical failures, we do feel the potential for, for trouble right here. Um, and him pointing it out, of course, heightens it um, as well. And then, of course, after the fuel burn with that whole moment of keeping the earth in the window, Jack says, let's hope we don't have to do that again. Right. And they don't, of course. But just posing the question raises tension. You're, you're telling the audience, hey, we might have to do that again, you know, and, and it's not going to be any easier. And so that just raises our, our we're like oh we're out right you think you can let your breath out and then suddenly it's like wait <laughs> uh, one more minute um and because it's not clear they're out of danger yet and this is one possible uh hair raising obstacle that might still be in the way and so just imposing that question it's just a genius little touch and for me though the best tension is from watching the family watch the news pure empathy that's all they're going for is just pure empathy because first they connect us to the family through all of their own small moments, right? The wife gets a mountain named after her. Uh, the mother is this very sweet uh, mom who tells a story, uh, right? Uh, if the, the line is something like, if they could get a washing machine to, to fly, mm -hmm. Jim could land it right now. That's all. That's really the only moment we get before, you know, she's back at the house meeting uh, unknowingly uh, Neil Armstrong. Yeah. Buzz Aldrin. Are yeah. you boys in the space program too? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the daughter, right? Uh, getting emotional over the Beatles and also not caring about her dad, right? Uh, like, I don't want to go. She And so you can start to emotionally build in because at that moment when you're you're seeing her be so flippant about it you're you're like oh you're going to regret that mm -hmm. and it just starts to imply some regret and so those moments are superfluous to the plot they don't matter those moments absolutely are no part of the sequence of that ship taking off uh having technical issues having those technical issues get resolved they don't matter at all but they're absolutely critical to the emotional uh, engagement of the story itself because without those moments you just don't care about the technical issues getting resolved or not mm -hmm. or you care a lot less mm -hmm. you know and it's the difference and i'm making this up so it's not literally a difference but you know if you go with me on this more symbolic concept uh it's the difference between plot and story like plot is just what happens story is why you care about what happens. And I think that's all absolutely mission critical to it, right? And it just really pays having all these family moments that's not advancing the plot at all uh, because we, the more we feel the family dynamic, the more important it is to see, to see Jim be okay. He's a missing puzzle piece from this family. And if you don't see that puzzle altogether, it's not gonna matter when you take away that piece. And so it's just a really, really smart use of runtime. It's 220, but it's all absolutely critical, yeah. Sorry, oh, no, 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 like it, gonna... it's no, that's it. This is beautiful. Keep going. So acting and I kind of add directing in here a little bit, but there's some of these moments that are happening that are so good. I love at the beginning watching Jim's face while Neil takes the first steps on the moon, right? We, we just assume so many feelings onto him. He's not doing anything. This is very like Kuleshov effect kind of stuff where 
Tom Hanks is just sitting chilling. <laughs> but as an audience, we're listening to the first words spoken on the moon, right? Neil Armstrong saying some of the most famous words ever uttered uh, in, in history. And we're watching him while it happens. Um, and you're just starting to assume all kinds of things onto him. And acting wise, I love when people play it sincerely and to the bone. The If there's a bad guy in this film, and there is not, but if there were, you would assume it to be the flight surgeon, right? And he has that moment towards the end when uh, Jim Lovell is tired of having everyone looking over his shoulder at his health, right? And he rips off the, the thing and he's like, uh, flight, we're, we just lost Jim Lovell. Uh, and he's freaked out, right? And I love uh, the lack of dialogue, you know, from Gene Kranz at, in that whole sequence. Because uh, he never says a word. It's just a look from him like, what's going on? Oh, eh, what are you going to do? Um, and then the other guys rip off theirs and he really freaks out. Flight, now I'm losing all three of them turn right uh and that sequence is important for him to yell his line and then give you a look uh it's just amps up the intensity of it and he's just playing it all the way a normal human would figure it out right by him freaking out is just a really good comedic punch and then of course um gene's reaction to that is like hey what are you gonna do and i love it i love acting all the way committing to your character um because that's a really good punchline. if he plays that you know more annoyed what's that's, I mean, what's the what's the experience there? Yeah. You know, but we're we need a laugh in that moment. Um, the audience is ready for that release valve, um, and so pressing that for just a moment is a really good way to release tension right before uh, you close the lid again and, and and ramp it back up. But it 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 does ask the question. Um, you you were talking earlier about the little girl in front of the grandmother. You know, having this emotional moment and all the all the non flight non-NASA people having all these emotions. But that little girl, I thought, did a great job. She's selling it, right? She's whatever. I don't know. How old do you think she is? Like eight? Um, yeah, probably. Right? Mm -hmm. And she's having this breakdown. Now, part of it is just maybe just make the face, right? But there's so several shots in there where I'm like, she looks like she's actually going to break. Um, maybe one shot where she's just getting into it and then a bunch of other shots where it's like, oh, snap. And then the same thing with the daughter towards the end daughter has like a tear just hanging out in the bottom of her eye. I'm like, Whoa. Mm -hmm. And the shot's not even on her. Really. She's like out of, out of focus, just slightly. We're watching the mother um, who's trying to hold it together, waiting to find out if, you know, her husband's going to live or not. And I love it because how do you build those moments as an actor? Right. Uh, how do you build an emotional moment? How do you build an emotional world? And, this was the fun thing being in this. Uh, I, I dropped into an introductory class from one of my old teachers, Carol Hickey Acting Studio. I'll link it in the show notes. If you're in Austin and you're looking for an acting coach, uh, she's wonderful. Uh, she's big on method acting. And there's a lot of mis, I don't know, understanding about method acting because everyone usually thinks of like Wesley Snipes mm -hmm. at the craft table, you know, saying, call me blade <laughs> like it's like okay blade would you like a ham sandwich <laughs> uh what kind of chips blade uh and so like everyone when they hear of method acting they always think of that it's not uh, that's one version of it there's probably a thousand as it goes with anything with people there's a million ways to do anything she's really big on world building mentally like the work you do in her world is to look at the script, right? 
and start imagining. And that's it. It's just imagining these these lives. And so if I'm that daughter playing this role and I want to use method acting, right? I might start imagining my dad, like not Tom Hanks, Jim Lovell. I might start thinking about all these moments that I had with Jim Lovell, uh, with my dad, right? And the more you start to build that out, the more you now have emotional memories to, to lean on. And it becomes like a real thing, a real person that you're going to lose. Oh, I remember when he taught me to ride a bike. Oh, man. Um, and, and I was struggling and I scraped my knee and he said those really nice things. Uh, whatever. And you make up some something. But it's not just writing it. It's imagining it. That's the that's the critical part because it's different. Method is different from like analyzing, which also works. Like these are all just different techniques, tools in your tool belt kind of thing, right? Analyzing, you might say, who is this little girl? Okay, she has a dad. She has uh, a big sister. I bet she fights a lot with her little sister. So I can kind of think about, you know, my lines of dialogue being antagonistic when I'm talking about her, um, my, my big sister and my big brother uh, who uh, sometimes is sweet and then sometimes pokes me in the eye, right? Um, and you can analyze and put all that stuff on paper, but it, for method acting, really thinking about it. And and what's, what's different about it too is, memory versus uh, a, a new memory, right? If you're imagining Jim Lovell as your dad and you're teaching you how to ride a bike and you scrape your knee, um, that's different as you're trying to create a new memory versus substitution, something more like Uta Hagen, which also works really well. I struggle with Uta Hagen um, depending on what I'm using because I have so many really dark memories to pull from. It can spiral me out of control emotionally and you kind of need to be in control of yourself on set believe it or not actors aren't running around with their hair on fire um looking to you know be extra for the sake of calling yourself an actor right you need to be in control of your your facilities and so uda hagen for me is very dangerous depending on the scene um, but uda hagen one of her big deals is using substitution so instead of imagining jim lovell as my dad instead you're imagining your own dad right and you're imagining oh what if uh what if my dad were in space and I was, or I was going to lose him. Remember that one time? Oh my gosh. That one time he got in a wreck. I couldn't remember. Oh, uh, or I, I, I wasn't sure if he was going to be okay or not. Oh man, that was terrifying. Okay. And action. And now you're holding this moment in your head and you're going back through that memory. That's substitution, right? As opposed to creating a brand new memory that's specifically about your character that you're playing now. Those are all really cool, interesting ways to kind of get to the same thing. Um, and just depending on who you are, maybe depending on the role, these are all interesting tools and tactics to get you into a moment uh, to, to do something honest. And that's the real goal here is to be honest when the director yells action. And the more tools you have, I think, now not everyone agrees with this. Some people are like, just work on the tools that you like the best. Just do those and get really, really good at those. Fine, cool. I can be too analytical. For me, the, the reason I love acting is between action and cut. Those are the only times in my life when I'm, I no longer feel like Wes. I get to really just stop. I get to be something else. That's really fun for me. And it's relaxing, <laughs> believe it or not. That's like relaxing more than therapeutic. It's actual relaxation. And so all these techniques are really interesting to use and to develop. 
Um, and I don't know who was using what, um, but I just, you know, uh, got acting bouncing around in my head and I thought it would be fun to discuss some, some techniques that some people use. I've, I've discussed other stuff in, in film, uh, acting before, like moments of composition. I know I talked about during, uh, a quiet place. Um, I've talked about physical gestures, like mental gestures that are about physical, um, actions, um, things like that. And, uh, realized after, her class i hadn't really talked about method at all so i thought that you know interesting thing if you're interested in studying acting yeah that's uh it's a fun way to go because homework in that kind of class isn't about going out and doing a bunch of things it's literally about looking at your script and finding out what are the clues that i can then create experiences from that will inform me not just about the character but give me something to experience whenever I'm actually on set and ready to work. Yeah. Um, awesome, man. Men's stoicism throughout the film. And this is a, a thing that I, this could be directing. It could be performance. It could be scripting. It could just be obvious. It could be none of those things. And it's just, obviously these are professionals and they don't run around with their hair on fire. Um, but throughout the film, all the guys have all, so much stoicism right? Masking their emotions. And I think though, from a directing, if it is a directing decision, the reason you might want to do that is it lets the audience really emote on behalf of the characters, right? And then when we see like the family getting emotional or trying to hold it back, now that weight is being passed on to the audience. Like, oh, I don't know. And it's just a beautiful way to create contrast between the reality of what you're watching, like life and death is happening and no one's breaking, but it also gives us a moment of really profound joy when we see them let loose at the end when they celebrate. Because that moment in Mission Control is so good because they never break. They got the entire film, right? Gene, Jim almost never lose their cool. They're constantly fighting to stay in control, right? Gene is constantly getting his guys, okay, quiet down now. And you think he's going to yell and he doesn't. Uh, the one time he yells, and I thought this was interesting from a, a sound mix perspective, which is he's gotten one too many excuses from the the power draw guys. Uh, and he's like, and I, I forget what he screams, but it's something along the lines of, uh, you know, GD, I don't want another estimate. And when he yells, you know, God dang it. Uh, there's a little clipping on the yell in the audio, like it clips just a hair, but it's enough. And I really like that. I don't know if it was on purpose or that's just the way it goes. Sometimes that's the way that cookie's going to crumble back then. I don't think you can do that anymore if you have a decent audio recorder, right? You can have enough um, uh, what bit depth uh, that'll you know accommodate you. But what's interesting though, even in modern times, sometimes you do want to do a little clipping and it's not obvious, but there's like this emotional psychological reaction that an audience has to clipping. And it doesn't matter if you're actually leveling it so that the, the volume is hitting zero. You could clip it and then reduce it so that the volume is sitting at minus 12 dB. But that clipping is still going to have the same exact psychological punch to the, to, the, to the person listening. It still sounds like clipping and it still grates your ears and it feels like it's too loud. Uh, it's a really nice, interesting psychological uh, button that you can push if the moment ever calls for it. I don't know that that moment called for it, uh, but it also worked. You felt the intensity. Um, I think you were going to feel it regardless, but the clipping certainly adds to it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it, it made it feel like that was improvised. 
even though mm. it you know probably wasn't just like oh whoa i didn't expect him to yell you know that at that you know the sound guy was probably like oh shit <laughs> you know yeah. but ron howard said nope nope that's that's perfect <laughs> because of the way that he yelled too you know it wasn't it wasn't a uncontrolled yell it was a, a aggression with it was controlled aggression it was very directed yeah. at like i'm not mad at the situation i'm mad at you and i want you to fix this now go you know it, which was which is very controlled and tunnel like funneled to one person and then back to it he goes right back to it so yeah great great point there so good yeah that's that's all i got man um that was a lot yeah, it was a lot actually <laughs> That was a lot. That's fantastic. <laughs> this movie's doing so much, and there's obviously it's still we've only covered a fraction of it, right? Um, yes, and it's just so good. God, I'm glad you threw this one out out there. It's probably been four or five years since I watched it, and uh, it was time. I honestly don't know what made me think about it. I, I think it was something. You know but... what? And I'm not saying this was direct, but I think I I could have absentmindedly planted the seed because uh, a couple days before you threw it out i hit you with uh you had sent me the album to listen to and i i i text you back like uh you sir are steely-eyed missile man yes <laughs> maybe you did plant the seed and i remembered that i remember yes <laughs> maybe that was it that one stays on my my tongue quite a, quite a bit <laughs> so good because when I, oh, I i remember hearing that as a kid and i didn't know what it meant it just sounded like a thing that people said back then <laughs> and i was like i don't know what it means but i'm gonna say it <laughs> that's great and then i'm like oh because they're they work at nasa um yeah, yeah. i get it i get it yeah. now. <laughs> i love it i love it whatever it was it worked uh so just made me think of that so because we were gonna do taken yeah. yeah right and i was totally fine with that mm-hmm. i was Same. like yeah mm-hmm. let's let's do it but uh i don't know just wanted to do this and i'm i'm so glad that we did like yeah yeah it was it's like life affirming right it's just this <laughs> yeah it it is it's very nostalgic to watch it you know to to see a younger tom hanks younger kevin bacon like and i was funny i was talking to to jenny my wife about this yesterday it was like one of the because i love golf and i love watching golf and there's this show on netflix called full swing that's fantastic uh it just follows last year's golf um uh season and one of the reasons i love golf is a big reason why this movie is so good as as a human being it's that it doesn't matter what just happened what matters is how you respond to it and the next shot right and sometimes sometimes it takes a crappy shot to have a great next shot a timeless next shot right i bet so many problems were fixed because of this expedition, you know, and so many more things that didn't happen that wrong in this scenario of Apollo 13 were probably fixed because of this and maybe more lives were saved, you know, um, and the same thing with golf. So it's like you can have a crappy shot, but how do you respond to that? And I think that the guys in this scenario, it was very much like that. OK, CO2 is rising. What do we do? Doesn't matter that it's rising. What matters is how we respond to it and how we have communicate that to them. And I found a um, a short video on on Gene Krantz on YouTube. I'll send it to you. Yeah, yeah. Really short. Just 
him being interviewed about being the commander and what like how communication how one word can change everything in your communication it can communicate fear or it can communicate a solution and and how like being very careful with what you say in a scenario is is like so important so anyway it's like two minutes long three minutes long but yeah damn very cool um last thoughts i said it all i just love it it's it's a top 10 film for sure like desert island movie i could (laughs) rewatch it right now it's a masterpiece in all the ways i wouldn't change a single thing same same like Yeah. yeah just the the vision that it took to bring this thing to to life you know is incredible it's really incredible yeah hats off to one of the best who ever do it to ever do it ron howard um nice what are you going to recommend this week um so I, there were between a couple of things uh a film that i watched with my kids last night that was really good but i think i'm going to go with music this week Seeger rose has a new record that's out streaming right now called atta a t t a and um i I mean, you can't buy it on CD or vinyl yet. CD. Yeah, they're doing CDs. Um, not until September, but uh, it is it is streaming and it's just uh, absolutely emotionally gut-wrenchingly beautiful. It's very slow and patient because it's Sigaros. So it's not like it's um, it's their, it's like talk uh, or whatever, their timeless um, album. But if you've, if you've got nothing to do for an hour and you just want to be uh, ripped apart, it is a, <sighs> just gorgeous album so atta by sigaros nice i'm always looking for a reason to rip myself apart so there you go that's aren't we all (laughs) i'm gonna recommend oh i was really close to recommending uh class of 07 uh which is really good it's on amazon prime um but i i knew i i realized that i had to do the bear season two (laughs) like it's just the best show on tv if if you're not watching the bear Season one was amazing, and you get to the end of season one, you're like, how are they going to top that? Where do you go from here? Um, how do you keep exploring these people? And then season two drops, and it, it melts your face. And now I'm feeling the same way about season three. Like, where could they possibly go from here? Um, what's left? Uh, and so they they have another mountain to climb. Um, and if the difference between season two and season one is any uh, indication it only gets better. Um, so yeah, the bear season two, just hit play. My God, just hit play. Yeah. And stay tuned for next week. There's a little known filmmaker named Christopher Nolan dropping a Oppenheimer and we're going to see what he's got going on. It's a three hour film. And so take a bathroom break and go sit in a, a theater because we're going to see what the heck is going on, man. I'm excited. AF my god yeah um if you're enjoying the show don't forget drop us a review subscribe uh leave us a note something you want us to cover uh we'll 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 talk it over uh and keep going i guess i don't know uh if you if you want to leave a note on this episode you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash apollo 13 and our quote of the day is from the great henry ford the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing yep i mean yeah i I, I have the same hope that you do. Like, I, I hope they learned a lot from, you know, all the failures of this film, uh, of this, of that mission um, and things that they could have done better. I do. I think so. I mean, it, as fast as they were moving through the Apollo missions and all the other ones leading up to it, 
they had so many tragedies and yet you know so much i don't know uh just desire and and fortitude uh to to keep moving forward but i also think of like the challenger you know explosion that was an entirely preventable disaster uh and it's like oh man um is that something they should have learned from apollo 13 i don't know i don't know but i i i like what henry ford is saying here like the only real mistake is whenever you're not learning from it um because otherwise you're just you know asking to be kicked again um or hurt someone again and when the stakes are this high you really every mistake can only happen once you can't allow cannot allow the same mistakes to happen multiple times regardless man uh it's pretty wild to think about these guys doing what they did in the era that they did it in i mean the computers that they were running right i mean my calculator uh sitting in my drawer is more powerful than what they had inside that that rocket ship like that's the height of insanity (laughs) and speaking of your calculator at one point jenny reached leaned over and she said are they doing these calculations by hand remember when they're calculating the the trajectory and everything give us a minute flight and they're doing calculus you know at lightning speed and you're thinking oh my god these are the most brilliant have to be the most brilliant people on the planet you know unbelievable i you know i will say to to that it just makes me think so yesterday so my son has been doing all this like he likes making making movies right he on his ipad like he'll go shoot things with his friends and he likes to direct and everything and and then he'll edit them and on imovie and you know they're really short or whatever but yesterday i told him hey i'll go film with you like i'll i'll film you can direct and everything and and all this stuff and it was a nightmare because the, imagine being around you know four you know eight to ten year olds none of them can decide what to do right so they just spend 20 30 minutes arguing about what to do what to say or, or like like all this stuff and and everything and so what i was trying to communicate to them was let's just film it at this point like stop arguing one person needs to say what we're going to do and let's do that because otherwise we're going to spend the entire time just arguing about it and nothing will get done and if you don't like it Mm. we can do it again what didn't you like about it okay you didn't like that okay let's do it again differently you know how do we want it and so while it's important to do your best you just need to do at some point and then if it's not right redo right like this quote says like learn from your mistakes you know what didn't you like okay whatever it it was it just made me think of that yesterday because it was like it was they were afraid to make a mistake yeah you know they were afraid that it wouldn't be good he was afraid that it was my son was afraid it that when he got into the editing room it wouldn't be what he wanted and i I, you know at some point i just said you've got to be be okay with making the mistake it's you if you never do it not only will you yeah you won't make a mistake but you won't have anything you know so i thought it was an important lesson that that's so good there was another quote i was looking at and i can't remember who it was from now um that was exactly along those same lines which was something like the only thing preventing you from success is fear of making a mistake um and it's just like you're never gonna go to your point if you aren't willing to screw up 
Uh, yeah. If you're willing to screw up, you can do anything. You yeah. know? Um, and yeah, I love that, especially in filmmaking. It's like, man, you know what? Sometimes that shot isn't going to work, but you, you won't know if you don't give it a chance, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Dude, that's hilarious that's awesome. and, and really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send, I'll send it to you when it's done. He, yeah, was, he started cutting it last night, but then he had to go to bed. I made him go to bed. He was very mad. <laughs> so when it's done, I'll send it to you. Nice. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. I, I just had an amazing time talking about this film. I could continue talking about it for another two hours. Uh, so yeah, like Wes said, please review us, subscribe. Uh, all the good things share us with your friends it all helps tremendously and if there's a film that you'd like to hear us cover and and pull apart dissect uh please make a recommendation uh maybe we'll cover it in a future podcast until next week i'm todd i'm wes go watch some movies